It is on page 19, page 19 and 20. So we're looking at Genesis 25, 19 through 26, 5. Why do we love good stories? We all love stories, right? We all love good stories. What is it about good stories that we love? We've probably all had those conversations, you know, what are your top three books that you've ever read? Or what are your top three movies of all time? And when we think about those, we think about things in the story, right? We think about the themes that kind of play out throughout the story. We think about the, kind of the overall plot Think about the characters and how the characters develop. We think about conflict and resolution. And those stories that we love so much, so many of them, they're great stories. And most of them are, they're human stories, right? They're stories that came about in the mind of the author. Uh, Maybe the characters are, maybe they're real characters. Uh, Maybe they're make-believe characters. But it's, it's it's a human story. It's a story that's written that we can relate to, that draws us in. You know, you think about reading one of your favorite books and how you can sit down with a book and it's just, you know, have you ever said, I just, I couldn't put it down, right? It's so engaging and there's just something that grabs your attention or you watch a movie and like the movie stops and you're like, whoa, like, like I feel like I was just like in that movie, right? It's so captivating and so engaging. We have the privilege to look at God's story, the story that he has written for us in the scriptures. The story of the Bible, it's not some story that was made up in the mind of a human author. It's God's story. There's a divine author. There's a divine actor. And there's human actors interacting together. And it's a unified story. We're starting here in Genesis, and we look, we've been looking at how the whole Bible is connected. It's a unified story, and it's an unfolding story. And as the story unfolds, we're beginning to see how all of these things in Genesis are really pointing us forward in preparation for the coming of Jesus Christ. It's a story of a father and his children. It's a story that ultimately points us forward to Jesus, how we can be saved by him from our sin and be reconciled to God. As we've been going through Genesis, we've been arguing that if you want to understand the Bible, if you want to understand the story of the Bible, then you need to start in the beginning. You need to know the God who called all creation into existence. You need to know the God who made promises to his people way back thousands of years ago in the Old Testament. And again, how Genesis and how the whole Old Testament points us forward to Jesus Christ. Since chapter 12 in Genesis, we've been following the story of Abraham and his descendants, the story of this family. Uh, There's been a lot of drama. There's been a lot of messy relationships, and we are going to see a lot of that in our story today. And as we read, we are reminded often, I think, that our lives, our stories are not that much different than this cast of characters here in Genesis And just like Abraham and his descendants, we fall short. We forget God's promises. We fail to believe that God is actually at work in our lives, even in the midst of our struggles. If you're taking notes, kind of the the main idea, the big idea, God is a good father who has adopted us to be his children, and he calls us to walk by faith and not by sight 
as we seek to live for him. God is a good father who has adopted us to be his children, and he calls us to walk by faith and not by sight as we seek to live for him. If you're following along in the ESV, we're going to break this down just right in those three sections that the ESV breaks these headings based on these headings. The first one is the birth of Esau and Jacob. Then Esau sells his birthright, and then God's promise to Isaac. If you've read the Bible at all before, if you've been in Sunday school growing up, you're probably familiar with these stories. You've heard these stories of Jacob and Esau. But it's easy to just see them as stories about these people who lived way long ago and forget how God is at work, how God was at work in their lives and how God is still at work in our lives. So as we read, let's pay attention to those details. Let's go to God's word together. Genesis 25, 19 through 26, 5. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. The word of the Lord. 
this first section, we're going to see walking by faith and not by sight. Walking by faith and not by sight. It begins with these words, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. And we've been going through Genesis, and we saw this very early on in Genesis, these words, the promise to Abraham, right? He would be the father of a multitude of nations. Ishmael, his son, who was born by the servant who wasn't part of the promise, even Ishmael was told he would become great nations. So Abraham's children, Ishmael, and then the promise through Isaac. Obviously, Isaac's children here, two nations, they're two peoples. That is in line with, with what God has already said. The second line, two peoples from within you shall be divided. Now, this is playing out here as the children are, are struggling with each other. They're being divided from one another, and they will come out of the womb and spend most of their lives struggling against one another and being divided from one another. Third line is not surprising. The one shall be stronger than the other. And then in the last line comes the unexpected promise. The older shall serve the younger. This is showing that things are going to happen here throughout the rest of Genesis, throughout the rest of the unfolding of God's people. Things are going to happen according to God's plan and not according to man's plans. And we'll get into this a little bit more later, but this whole idea of, of the birthright and how things worked out in the ancient Near Eastern world, this is not the way that it worked out. The older did not serve the younger. Come back to that. So the children are born. They come out. Esau is all hairy and red. And there's kind of this play on words here for his name, Esau, and then Edom, uh, which is kind of the name of the place where, where him and his descendants lived. And then Jacob. Jacob comes out holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. And there's a footnote there in the ESV, and it says that it means uh, he takes by the heel or he cheats. Okay, We're going to see this again all throughout Jacob's life. Esau is, we're told Esau is a hunter, and Jacob is a quiet man. He stays at home, he loves to cook, he dwells in tents. And then at the end of this section, verse 28, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. There's parental favoritism, and we don't see it addressed here, but we're, we're going to see it play out in, as Genesis continues to, to go on. And we're especially going to see it next week in, verse, in chapter 27. We're going to see how this parental favoritism plays itself out. As we're reading this story, as we're reading about these two sons, as we're reading about these parents, it kind of feels like a reality TV show, doesn't it? It's like the first episode of the, of the season, the first episode of, the, of this new reality show, and we're introduced to this kind of weird family and these boys who are, who are fighting and going to be at war with each other and these parents who are scheming for their children and we're kind of like wondering, what is going to go on here? Well, there's going to be a lot of drama, so get ready. <laughs> but we can feel the tension mounting here. But what's, what's the moral of the story? What are we supposed to learn from this story? Parents, don't show favoritism to your kids. Kids, don't scheme and try to get your parents on your own side, right? Sure, 
I mean, that's, that's good advice. But if you've been around here very long, or if you're new, if you're visiting with us, sorry to disappoint you. I'm not going to give you five easy steps to being a better parent, or five easy steps to being a more obedient child. Uh, not that there aren't ways to do that. I'm not going to give you three keys to having the perfect home life. Because life is not formulaic. We don't just plug some, something in. If you just do this, then this will be the outcome every time, right? Life doesn't work that way. We went through Ecclesiastes this summer, and we saw that, didn't we? Life is perplexing. Life is hard. We walk with God. We trust him. We pray. We, we read the Bible. We come to church. Sometimes we do all those things, and it still feels like we're just banging our head against the wall, right? Like nothing is working out the way it's supposed to, the way that God said it would. That's how it looks from our perspective. But what can we learn from this story? I think two things. First, trust the Lord when things don't go as planned in your life. When situations like barrenness or warring children affect you. Life is hard. We are called to pray and to seek the Lord when life is hard. To seek him when things don't make sense in our lives. And the second thing is, know that God is up to something in your life. He is at work. He is writing your story. Just like as he, was, like he was writing the stories of these people in the Old Testament. He is writing his story according to his wisdom and not according to the ways of the world. We're going to see over and over throughout Genesis that things are happening in a way that's just unexpected, in a way that God is at work, and it's not the way that man would have chose to do it. So you want a practical, you want some practical steps? You want some practical advice? Be in community with those who are in the same boat, right? Be in community with others who are facing the same challenges in life. Come to church And be around a bunch of other sinners who are saying, I don't have it all together. And you know what? Sometimes my life kind of sucks. But it's not about me, right? It's not about me getting what I want. It's about God. It's about his will. It's about his glory. And we walk this walk and we struggle together and we trust him. Go to a community group, right? This isn't just a shameless plug for growing Livingstone Church, but be involved in people's lives in a more intimate setting, right? Go and share your struggles, maybe that you wouldn't feel comfortable just sharing out in the open here in a setting where you can trust people and you can pray for one another and you can spend time for one another and then you see people during the week or you can send them a text, hey, how's it going? I'm praying for you, right? We need to be involved in each other's lives in that way. This is a family affair, right? We are a family And of course, there's going to be drama, right? There's drama in these families. There's drama in our human families. There's going to be drama in our church family, right? And we work through it, right? We confess our sins to one another. We pray for one another. We're reconciled to one another. We walk with one another. God works through the drama for his glory and for our good. Well, let's see how this family drama continues to play out. The next section, we're going to see walking by sight and not by faith. Walking by sight and not by faith. 
This drama that plays out here in verses 29 to 34, excuse me, it's really inevitable on a couple levels. First, God said that it was going to happen, right, earlier in his promise to Rebecca. He said that these boys would be divided. But the second thing is the parental favoritism, right? That played into this. So this drama that is happening is just kind of inevitable in a lot of ways. So here we see this scene playing out. There's no doubt here that many years have passed uh, since they were born. Esau is hunting and Jacob is is cooking. Uh, They're probably at least teenagers, I would assume, probably older. I'm sure there's been a lot of history, right, between these brothers. There's probably been a lot of battles going on, probably a lot of harsh words spoken. I'm guessing there's probably been some punches thrown, right? They've been going at it. They've been dueling their whole lives. Esau comes in from hunting, and he's tired. Jacob, again, is at home cooking. Esau's exhausted, and he wants some food. Jacob says, I'll feed you if you sell me your birthright. Now, I wonder how long has Jacob been scheming and waiting for this day, right? How long has he been looking for an opportunity to take advantage of Esau? And this request here, it's, it's a crazy request. It's, it's deceitful. It's wrong. I'm sure Jacob knew that it was wrong. He knew the birthright was not his. He was not the firstborn. But he schemes. I call this the younger brother syndrome, right? Uh, many of us have probably had experiences like this. Maybe you are the younger brother or maybe you have a younger brother. You've experienced it or... You've heard stories of other people and and their younger brothers, you know, tagging along, right? Sports or different things, trying to be like the big brother, trying to show off, trying to be in the in the crowd, right, with when the older brother is around. There's jealousy going on. And that's Jacob, right? He is trying to get what Esau has. Esau had his father's attention, told that Isaac loved Esau. He was a hunter. Probably had antlers mounted on the wall, right? Isaac probably looked at him and said, oh, that's, you know, that's Esau's and that's Esau's. Every time Jacob comes in the house, he's got he's to see that reminder, right? He's just burning up. Well, he, Esau sells his birthright here to Jacob. And the birthright wasn't just the bragging rights of saying, I was born first. It was actually... The firstborn son in Israel inherited the leadership of the family, the priesthood of the family, or maybe even the whole tribe, and he received a double portion of the inheritance. So if it was just Jacob and Esau, Esau would have got two-thirds of the inheritance, and Jacob would have only got a third. Jacob knew that he would play second fiddle to Esau throughout his whole life unless he took matters into his own hands. So just as at birth... As he reached out and he grabbed Esau's heel, here again he's grabbing and he's scheming and he's living up to his name. But it's not all Jacob's fault here. Esau is just as much to blame. And there are some, again we've talked about this human element and this divine element that's working itself out here and that's unfolding in these events. There are two places in the New Testament that actually speak to what's going on in these stories. 
in Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews 12, it's right after the great chapter on faith that we've looked at the last few weeks, talking about Abraham and how he trusts God and his descendants. Chapter 12 starts off by saying, look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Look to him, trust him, and follow him. But then a little farther down in that chapter, it says, don't be unholy or don't be profane like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. There's not a lot of places in the Bible where it says that explicitly, don't be like someone. But Esau is pointed out here in Hebrews chapter 12, and we're told to not be like him. He, he was unholy in not caring about his birthright, not trusting in the Lord and selling it for a single meal. So what is the message then? Be like Jacob? <laughs> well, that's not the message, right? And Paul blows that idea up in Romans chapter 9. It's actually printed on the cover of your worship guide. Take that out. Paul talks about the incident that we saw in the earlier chapter with the birth of the boys. It said, When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And that's a quote, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, is a quote from the book of Malachi. So what we see here is that God is at work behind the scenes in the lives of these boys, in our lives, in the lives of the nation of Israel. And it says that before they did anything, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. We talk about kind of these big words like providence, right, and sovereignty, how God is sovereign in our salvation. Words like election, right, that God chooses those who will be saved. And that can be a kind of a tense thing sometimes when we talk about it. There can be a lot of a disagreement within Christian circles about that. I wanted to share a quote that I think might be helpful to help kind of understand this idea. Uh, This is from the book, Living in the Grip of Relentless Grace, the Gospel in the Lives of Isaac and Jacob. And it's in the series, The Gospel According to the Old Testament, which we've looked at. Uh, There's a book on Abraham. There's also one on Joseph. There's ones on all different kinds of uh, characters and events in uh, the Old Testament. And just a great series if you're looking to kind of dig into some, some good study a little bit. But... Uh, Ian Duguid here explaining this idea of, of Esau selling his birthright and of God's election. He says, Esau despised his birthright. It was fitting that that which he despised should ultimately be taken from him. God's choice of Jacob to inherit the birthright is not unfair because it merely takes from Esau something that he counted of no value. That is how the process of election always works. Those who remain outside God's kingdom, who have not received his election and calling to become part of his people, do not lose something they desire and want, but rather something they despise. Noah did not have to fight to keep the masses out of the ark as if it were the last lifeboat to leave a sinking ship. He did not have to stand by the gangplank with a shotgun. In fact, it was quite the reverse. He begged and pleaded for the people of his generation to repent, 
but only those whose hearts God changed wanted to take shelter within the ark's confining, confining walls. Isn't this what we see all around us? There are multitudes who have no real interest in God and his way of salvation, even as they pursue all kinds of other spiritual paths. God continues to choose and call those who are his, but those who are passed over by God will never complain that God is being unfair. Left to themselves, they have no desire to be chosen. The emphasis here is that salvation is always 100% the work of God's free grace. It's nothing that we do on our own. Before Jacob or Esau had done anything good or bad, God chose Jacob. And I wrestled with this idea a lot when I was a new Christian. Uh, I, would, I thought about my life. I was very far from the Lord. I was doing a lot of very horrible things and being hurtful to a lot of people in my life. I was selfish. I was arrogant. I didn't care about the things of God. I mocked Christians when they tried to share the gospel with me. And one night, in a drunken stupor, a guy comes and shares the gospel with me. And, you know, I'd heard the same stuff from the Christians in my dorm, but I didn't want to have anything to do with it. And for whatever reason, right, that night, God just broke me of my sin, and I knew that I needed Christ. It was unexplainable. And just within weeks, God just was radically transforming my life and helping me to to see what life was all about. And I remember going home for, for break and sharing with one of my good friends, Nick, who was like the nicest guy you would ever meet. He was the guy in high school who would like stick up for all the kids that were bullied. He would just be a friend to anybody. And I remember going and, and talking to Nick and, and just talking with him about what God had done in my life. And it was kind of like, hey, you know, that's good for you. But yeah, whatever. You know, I don't, I don't need that. And just thinking like, here's like the nicest guy in the world, right? And I was the biggest jerk in the world. Like, why would God do this work in my life and not in his life? And it was perplexing to me. And it was hard to figure out. I didn't understand it. I didn't know what God was up to. But then we take a step back and we think about it. And we need to ask, why would God ever choose any of us? Right? There's always someone smarter than us. There's always someone better behaved than us. There's always someone harder working than us. This is what sets Christianity apart from all other world religions and all other worldviews. Please listen carefully here, okay? All, in all other worldviews, in all other religions, God grades on a curve, right? Just be a little bit better. I gotta be a little bit higher than those who are 